man named Horatio Spafford was born in New York in 1828. He grew up to be a successful lawyer and he was part of a large firm in Chicago. He lived a comfortable life with his wife Anna and their four daughters. He was an active member and an elder at their Presbyterian church. He was a friend and loyal follower of the evangelist D.L. Moody. In addition to his law practice, he had invested much of his wealth in Chicago real estate. It was pretty smooth sailing for the Spaffords. And then tragedy struck. In October of 1871, a fire broke out in Chicago. The blaze burned for 24 hours, destroying four miles of the city, claiming the lives of 300 people and destroying more than 17,000 buildings. And even though the Spaffords were physically unharmed, their real estate fortune was wiped out. And so Horatio drowned himself in his work. He drowned his grief in his work, pouring himself into the rebuilding of the city and, and in helping the 100,000 people who had been left homeless. In November of 1873, he decided to take his wife and daughters to Europe. His friend D.L. Moody was setting off on an evangelistic campaign, and he wanted to go follow them, thinking this may be sort of a, a vacation of sorts to lift their spirits of the family after this hard time. But an urgent business matter detained Horatio in New York, and still he sent his wife and his daughters on ahead of them aboard the SS Ville de Havre as scheduled promising that he would join them soon. In the early morning hours of November 22nd, 1873, as the Ville d'Avre glided over the waters of the Atlantic, the passengers were jolted awake from their slumber. They were jolted from their bunks when the ship hit an iron sailing vessel. Water started pouring in like Niagara Falls. Passengers clung to posts, tumbled through the darkness, and were swept away by the freezing current. Within a hellish hour, the mighty ship vanished beneath the waters. 226 lives were lost that day, including all four of Spafford's daughters. Annie, age 12, Maggie, age 7, Bessie, age 4, and 18-month-old Tanetta. His wife Anna was found nearly unconscious, clinging to a piece of wreckage when then the 47 survivors landed in Cardiff, Wales, Anna sent back a telegram to her husband. It simply read, saved alone, what shall I do? Saved alone, what shall I do? What could she do? What would you do? What do we do when tragedy strikes, when the wind and the waves are crashing all around us in life? Where do you turn? Where is your hope? For the last seven months, we've been in the book of Acts, walking through stories that are part of this larger narrative, this larger story about Jesus leading his people by the Spirit to go into the world and invite all nations to live under his reign. Most recently, we've seen accounts of the Holy Spirit leading this man named Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, to take the gospel all around the Mediterranean. We've seen Paul captured, imprisoned, beaten, and flogged. He has testified before councils and governors, local rulers, and kings. And we left off last week that he had been granted to go and try his case before Caesar in Rome. And we read this just a few weeks ago in chapter 23, verse 11, that Paul, when Paul was being held by the Romans in some barracks, and the Lord appeared to him one night and said, Take courage, Paul. 
For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. God has a plan for Paul's life. And no mob, no, no regional official, nothing, no one is going to take that away from him, is going to get in the way of what God has planned for his life. So I want you to keep that in mind as we continue the story today with one of the most uh, detailed, uh, best nautical accounts in all of Scripture. By the way it's written, you may think this, that this was written by a seasoned sailor, but again, this was written by the Apostle Luke, who wrote the, the Gospel of Luke, who, and, and Luke's a physician. But he gives this awesome detailed account, first eye account, of being on the ship with Paul. And so I'm going to read this passage. It's found in Acts 27 and 28. And if you want to follow along, that's fine. I know we, we may be creatures of habit. Um, but I'm going to do it a little bit different today. I'm going to be pulling from the ESV translation, as well as the message translation, as well as adding in some other uh, commentary, because it has some nautical terms that, at least, if you're like me, I needed, I needed a little bit of help, because, you know, landlocked, native, Colorado, and... Um, uh, to know a little bit more about what's going on. But I'd, so maybe just listen, and there will be some pictures as well, and try to put yourself in the place of Paul on this ship. How would you respond? How does Paul respond? Gleaning uh, the confidence that Paul has in, um, in the promise that Jesus has given him. All right? So we're going to dig in. Acts 27. As soon as arrangements were complete for our sailing to Italy, Paul and a few other prisoners were placed under the supervision of a centurion named Julius, a member of an elite guard. We boarded a ship from Adramidium, bound for the ports along the coast of Asia. We were also accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day, we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly, even letting him get off the ship to enjoy the hospitality of his friends there. Out to sea again... We sailed north under the protection of the northeast shore of Cyprus because the winds out of the west were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Egyptian ship headed for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly through bad weather for a number of days, and we arrived with difficulty off Nidus. As the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete, that is, off the southern coast. And coasting along it with difficulty, we finally arrived and docked at a place called Fair Havens, appropriately named, near the city of Lycia. A quick note here, as you hear about this, you, you may not be able to see, and I think this map of the journey um, by, by a guy named uh, James Smith, a Bible scholar, is this really cool old book published in 1880. If you really want to dig into this story... He gives, a, he gives details on like every piece of this journey, but you can see, maybe, it's pretty small and hard to see, the, the red line shows their path, and it's very jagged, it zigzags back and forth, and so again, I, being a landlocked guy, I had not much time out on the open water, I had to call my buddy Pete this week, and I'm like, what's the deal with, with this sort of journey? And he said, well, because they were fighting the wind in a sailboat, obviously you can't sail into the wind, and so you have to have this zigzag pattern, it's called tacking, tacking back and forth to get there. And it struck me to think about how in life, oftentimes we want our journey from point A to point B to be in a really straight line. But oftentimes, real life looks more like this, doesn't it? Going through this season or that season, trying to, trying to achieve this goal or that goal, feels like we're just zigging and zagging and tacking against the wind. But even though it's not a straight line, and even though it takes longer than expected, they're still headed in the right direction. They still have a compass. They still have a bearing. Maybe you've experienced a season of life like this. Continuing on, verse 9. The journey had already taken longer than anticipated just to get to this point. 
It was already past the Day of Atonement, so about October in AD 59. And we knew it would be stormy weather from now on through the winter. Dangerous sailing. So Paul advised the guards, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the captain and the owner of the ship than to Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, they decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Well, one day, a south wind blew gently, and the crew jumped at this opportunity. They quickly weighed anchor, and they began sailing along Crete, close to the shore. But we were no sooner out to sea than a tempestuous wind, the infamous nor'easter, struck down from the land. They lost all control of the ship as it was caught and could not face the wind. We gave way to the wind, and we were driven along like a cork in the storm. Running under the lee of a small island called Kata, we managed with difficulties to secure the ship's lifeboat that had been in tow. After hoisting it up, the crew used supports to undergird the ship to keep it from busting at the seams. And then fearing they would run aground on the Sirtis Sands north of Africa, they lowered the gear and were driven along. After being storm-tossed all night, the next day the crew began to jettison the cargo. On the third day, they attempted to lighten the load further by throwing off the tackle and the provisions. Neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. The wind and the waves battered us unmercifully. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. It's an interesting note that Luke makes here. All hope of being saved was abandoned. After a week or more in rain and rough seas, the crew is exhausted. The captain's plan and the timeline had gone away with the wind a long time ago. All hope had been lost. Maybe you've been in seasons like this. Nothing seems to be going right. What plans you thought you had for your life are not panning out. Hope is low or lost altogether. Luke notes that, that their hope, he himself included, is lost. But what about Paul? What about this man that we've noticed with an unwavering confidence in God's protection and provision? Is it shaken now? Let's keep going to see how Paul's feeling compared to the rest of the ship. Luke writes on, verse 21. We were starving and exhausted, but then Paul stood up among the crew and said, Men, you should have listened to me back in Crete. I love, I love this note, right? Because it feels like real life. Paul's exhausted. We've probably heard this, you, you've probably said this when you've been on a road trip or some sort of journey, or maybe your spouse has said it to you. You should have listened to me back there. We should have taken a left and not a right. My wife is actually a really gracious co-pilot. She'll let me do the decision that I think we need to do, and then I'll find myself in, you know, trouble. She's like, well, I was maybe going to say something, but I'm going to let you do it. <laughs> I, I think it's great because we see that Paul is, is real. He's not a superhero. He's experiencing real emotions. He's tired. He's frustrated. But he continues, verse 22. He says, let's not dwell on that now. I urge you to take heart. Literally in the Greek, it says to keep up your courage. Take heart, men. Keep up your courage, men, for there will be no loss of life among you. Although I can't say as much for the ship. And just like chapter 23, where the Lord appears to Paul in this dark place to comfort him with the promise of provision, verse 23 here, Paul says, this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said to me, do not be afraid, Paul. Do not give up. Take heart. Keep up your courage. You're going to stand before Caesar just as the Lord promised. 
And God has granted mercy also to all of those who sail with you. Once again, the Lord, an angel, appears to Paul in the darkness with this promise. Like many times before in the midst of a storm, Paul doesn't miss this opportunity then to also tell those around him about the good news. He says, I want to tell you about the God that I worship. I want to tell you about the God to whom I belong. You see, sometimes our reactions to the storms in life speak the loudest to those who are watching from the outside. They may ask, how do you seem so at peace when the chaos of of your life or the chaos of this world is crashing in around you? How do you seem at peace? It's only by holding on to the promises of God, by staying anchored in God, that we can speak life, that we can speak hope in the midst of life's storms. Paul goes on in verse 25, he says, So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. It's a real good news, bad news situation there, right? He's like, hey, don't worry, we're not going to die, but we got to wreck the ship. We're going down. I think back to another nautical narrative from Luke in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. We see Jesus and his disciples get into a boat to sail across from one side of the lake to the other. And Jesus decides to take the opportunity to, to get a little rest. And he's asleep in the boat. When all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a storm comes up on the water, right? And the disciples are hanging on for dear life. They're bailing water out of the boat. They're, they're freaking out. And they go to Jesus and they say, don't you care about us? Don't you care that we may be drowning? And Jesus calmly, graciously wakes up. He speaks to the wind and the waves and he calms the storm. Could Jesus have worked the same kind of miracle here for Paul and these sailors? Absolutely. Did he? No. We love singing those songs and reading the stories about Jesus calming the wind and the waves. But what about the stories where he doesn't calm the wind and the waves? What about the times in life when the storms don't subside? What about the seasons of life when we are just getting battered left, right, center, seasons, months, years, days on end? Where is God? Where is God in those times? You've maybe had seasons of life like that, asking those same questions. We may not know why God calms some storms and others. He doesn't, but he is God. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And he is the rock. I almost called Matt yesterday uh, to change one of the songs for this morning, knowing that would be kind of foolish and it was a little bit too last minute. But a song came to mind this last week when I was was working on this passage. It's a little bit older now, 2006, by a band named Casting Crowns. It's called I'll Praise You Through the Storm. Uh, you may have heard it. Uh, profound words. I just want to put the chorus up here for us. And I want to give you the, the homework. Maybe go back home and look it up. Casting crowns, praise you in this storm. And think about, I, I thought about, Paul could have written this song in the midst of this storm. The words line up so perfectly. It says, I'll praise you in this storm. And I will lift my hands, for you are who you are, God. No matter where I am. And every tear I've cried, you hold in your hands. You've never left my side. And though my heart is torn, I will praise you in this storm. Friends, God's promises remain unshaken. God has promised to be with you always, even to the end of the age. God has promised to always love you and forgive you. God has promised to prepare a place for you at his side for all eternity. 
two years before this voyage, Paul wrote a letter to the Christians in Rome, the Christians that he is eagerly anticipating being visiting them for the very first time. And so here he is on his way to Rome. I wonder if he's holding on to these same words that the Spirit gave him a couple years earlier. Romans 12, 12 says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulations, and be constant in prayer, consistent in prayer. I have to imagine Paul is constantly in prayer in the midst of this voyage, right? Luke continues on. On the 14th night, adrift somewhere on the Adriatic Sea about midnight, The sailors sensed that they were approaching land, and so taking a sounding, they measured a depth of 20 fathoms, or 120 feet, and shortly after that, 90 feet. Afraid that we were about to run aground, they let down four anchors and prayed for daylight. Some of the sailors tried to jump ship. They let down the lifeboat, pretending they were going to set out more anchors from the bow, but Paul saw right through their guys and told the centurion and his soldiers, if these sailors don't stay with the ship, we're all going down. And so the soldiers cut the lines to the lifeboat and let it drift off. I guess they're finally ready to listen to Paul, right? As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Love this detail. Many of you will catch the parallel right away to the Last Supper. When Luke writes of this account in Luke 22, it's almost the exact same words, right? Talking about Jesus with his disciples, and he takes the bread and he breaks it. And giving thanks, he says, this is my body given for you. Luke doesn't note that this is intentionally what Paul is doing, trying to share communion with the soldiers or anybody on board. We don't know, even know that these or sailors, excuse me, that these sailors are are followers of Jesus. But I think the detail is important. Paul, again, is taking an opportunity to give thanks in the midst of the storm, to break bread, to gather people around, to draw people near. I don't think he's only doing it for himself, but again, he's gathering, giving thanks, pointing people to God in the midst of the storm. Luke says in verse 38, When they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. At daybreak, no one recognized the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, to, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cut loose from the anchors, and they left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, we made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The front of the ship was stuck in the sand and the mud and the clay and remained immovable in the stern, the back of the boat was getting battered by the wind and the surf, the waves and the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away or escape. This is because if a soldier in that time lost one of their prisoners, they would be punished severely. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest, and the rest on planks or pieces of the ship. And so it was that we were all brought safely to land. Another promise of God fulfilled. Just as the angel had told Paul, there would be no loss of life, but only the ship. God keeps his promises. Chapter 28, Luke continues on. He says, once everyone was accounted for and we realized that we had all made it, we learned that we were on the island of Malta. The native people were hospitable and they showed us unusual kindness. The day was rainy and cold and we had already been soaked to the bone. And so they built a huge bonfire and we gathered around it. 
No doubt exhausted, Paul still pitched in to help. He gathered a bundle of sticks, and when he put them on the fire, a viper came out from the sticks, roused from its hiding because of the heat, and fastened onto Paul's hands. When the native people saw the creature hanging from Paul's hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. He might have escaped the sea, but justice has not allowed him to live. Paul, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and so saw no misfortune had come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. They might say he's a god, but I, I, I see Paul here as kind of like the original Chuck Norris, right? Gets bit by a snake, and after three days of excruciating pain, the snake dies. I, I can't get over this series of events, though, right? Two weeks getting crushed at sea. And finally, you, you see land, and finally there's maybe a little bit of hope after all hope has been lost. But then the ship runs aground and gets, starts getting bashed by the waves, just getting crushed. And so you jump off, and you start swimming this last 500 yards into the coast, into the beach. And only just a few minutes after getting your sea legs under, you're trying to build a fire. No sooner does a snake come out and bite you on the hand. Any of, any of us would probably react like, God, are you kidding me? What is going on? Seriously. But not Paul. Again, Paul has been through it. I almost wonder if he just kind of like stops and looks at the snake and looks out at the water and the shipwreck and the you know, carnage of the boat, looks up at God, kind of chuckles a little bit, shakes off the snake, just like, all right, God, I see you. Right? But again, Paul is not afraid. He's so profoundly anchored in God that God will carry out his promises and the purpose for Paul's like, life. That Paul's like, God didn't bring me through that storm just to have me die on a beach by a silly snake. That's not going to happen. God's not going to do that. Now, you might think that Paul is due for a vacation or at least a little nap, right? But no, he has a single-minded focus to do God's will. Reading on. 28 verse 7, nearby were lands belonging to the chief man of the island, a man named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. Okay, so maybe Paul got a little rest. But it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed over him, and putting his hands on him, he healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came, and they were also cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to set sail again, they put on board whatever we needed. I imagine this voyage and shipwreck left an impact on Paul, no doubt, but it for sure left an impact on the sailors, on the crew, on the guards, and now also on this peop the, the people of Malta. Those on board the ship shared a trauma bond for sure, but, but they were alive and they were blessed because they had journeyed with Paul, an awesome man of God. They journeyed with Paul, but Paul journeyed with God, and that everybody else was better for it. Can the same be said about you or me? Do people look at us and say, I've seen the way that per that person has weathered their storms in life. I want to be near them because any time I'm around them, they point me to Jesus. The way they weather storms points me to Jesus. I want them on my boat. I want them on my ship. I'm tired of going it alone. I'm tired of sailing alone. I need godly men and women on the ship with me so that when I'm caught in a storm, when they've been through some storms, and, and I was talking to somebody after the first service, those of you who are a little bit older than me, older than the rest of us who are my age and younger, students, 
We need those of us who have been through storms, seasoned sailors, I'll call you. You've been through some stuff. You've seen it. You've come out the other side. We need you. We need one another on the boat together. A friend reminded me recently of the old saying, smooth seas never made skilled sailors. And I thought about this passage. When we encounter trials of any kinds, we have assurance that our sufferings are not in vain. God is faithful to produce steadfastness and confidence within us when we remain anchored in him. Romans 5, 2 through 5 says, We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Reminded also of James 1, 2 through 4, that he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance or steadfastness. And, and, and we have to let that steadfastness take its full effect that we may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. The proverbial seas that we sail in life have the potential to form in us and strengthen us if we trust, like Paul did, that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's Ephesians 1.11. That he's producing endurance and character and hope in us. Just as I asked the kids, what's your anchor in life? Who is your anchor in life? Or are you like James says, like some who are just being blown and tossed by the wind and the waves and the sea? The only place in the Bible outside of these nautical accounts where the word anchor is used is in Hebrews chapter 6. The writer of Hebrews recounts how God made a promise to Abraham, and Abraham waited patiently for that promise to be fulfilled. Remember again Paul's words in Romans 12, be patient in affliction. Waiting for the Lord, waiting for his promises, being patient for God's timing, especially waiting on God through a storm, is not easy. No one says it's easy. There's no way that we can do it on our own strength. When you get rocked in life, You do two things. You can turn away from God and be mad at God, or you can turn and run to God and be dashed on the rock of ages, clinging to God as our hope. And I think for those of you who have been through the grieving process, you know that that's maybe day to day. There are days where you're crying out, cursing up to God. God, what is going on? And then there are days where all you can do is cling to him. So friends, I hope and pray that that is your experience either in the past that you've learned from that, in the future when that happens. Um, But what does God do about it? Going back to Hebrews 6, what does God do about these storms, about the trials in our life? The writer of Hebrews says that when God desired to show more convincingly the unchangeable character of his promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. He guaranteed it with the blood of his son Jesus on the cross so that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And here it is. Here's the anchor. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And because we have this hope sealed and anchored in Christ, and because Jesus is our high priest seated beside the right hand of God, 
intercessing on our behalf, pleading on our behalf, knowing what we need, knowing our pain, knowing our struggles with us in our pain and in our struggles. And because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us to guide us, to comfort us through all of life's storms, therefore we hold fast. We hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because Hebrews 10, 23 says, because he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. Christ is our anchor. The promise of eternal life with him for those who put their faith and trust in him. This is our anchor, friends. Christ is our anchor. His word, his promises are our anchor. I'm gonna let the kids come on back in and the worship team to come back up. I think about Horatio Spafford receiving that short telegram from his wife. Saved alone, what shall I do? Coupling that with the unimaginable news and details that he had probably pieced together from news stories or other sources, the news of losing four children. When he received the news, he dropped what he was doing to catch a ship to go and be with his grief-stricken wife. It was about a two-week journey across the Atlantic. I can't imagine the loneliness, the sorrow that he must have felt on that long voyage across the ocean. One day, the captain of the ship came to him and said that they were nearing the place where the other ship had gone down. They were nearing the place where his daughters had died. He might have been overcome with emotion. He might have still been in shock, honestly. But one thing is certain, that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. God had given him a supernatural sense of peace. And it was there that he began to pen the words to the famous hymn, It is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, God, you've taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control me that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and he has shed his own blood for my soul. Friends, I don't know what you are going through. I don't know what the, the, the seas look like in your life, what sort of boat you're on, what sort of storm you may be sailing through. I know many of you. I know many of your stories. I know many of you have been through some terrible storms. But I hope and I pray that as you come, as you join, as we sail together through this journey of life, as we hold one another up through the storms, through those hard times, that this place would be a safe harbor. And so maybe it's during this song or after the service, if you need prayer, if any of us can come alongside you and pray with you and pray for you, we want to do that. We want to be that for you. We want to be a place, a body, a family that continues to point one another to Jesus Christ, our rock and our anchor. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we praise you in smooth sailing and in rough seas in good times, in hard times, in blessing and in tragedy. God, whatever our lot, when we pray, come what may, God, it's scary, it's dangerous. It may be easy to say that it's well with my soul, but there are days where we don't feel it. So God, it's in those times that I praise you that you are unchanging, that you are immovable, that you are the rock of ages, that you are our anchor. 
might we as brothers and sisters continue to lift one another up, bearing each other's burdens, pointing one another back to you in your name. Amen. Stand as we sing our